Isn't grace amazing? I mean, it fills our minds and imaginations with joy. It fills our hearts with passion and excitement. We, we sing songs just coded in poetry about grace. And yet sometimes, sometimes I just hate grace. And I know a pastor should never, ever, ever say that, right? Let alone any Christian for that matter. But sometimes I just do. Grace is offensive. I mean, grace means at its core that I don't get what I deserve. And really, when I think about what I do deserve, it's a lot less than grace, right? I mean, who likes to be reminded that they're not good enough? Who likes to be reminded that we wake up on a daily basis needing grace because we consistently choose the wrong things for ourselves and the ones that we love? Who likes to admit that every day we need help? I mean, nobody likes to admit that, right? And even though sometimes I hate grace because of what it says about me, I think the harder pill to swallow is that grace means that other people don't get what they deserve. You know what I'm talking about. You know, the guy that that cuts you off in the middle of traffic. I'm not thinking of grace at that point. You know, the, the person who breaks your heart to the core who you'd led into the depths of your soul and they've ravaged your life. Or maybe even more so when we see our loved one's hearts be broken. Grace isn't on the forefront of our mind. And every time I I get excited, which is terrible, but I still do at times, get excited about somebody getting what's coming to them. I hear grace and I see it wagging its little finger saying, to err is human, to forgive is divine, you know. Yeah, I get it, grace, but sometimes I hate grace. And if you're honest with yourself, sometimes you hate grace a little bit too. We all have that, that moment where we hold, hold tightly to the old law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It just comes across as a cold shoulder for a cold shoulder or a glare for a glare. And most of us, we don't have the guts yet to say that we hate grace sometimes. I mean, we like the perks of grace, but we don't necessarily always enjoy what it calls us to, who it calls us to. Well, this summer we've been spending some time with the prophets of scripture, and, and they, can, they can get a bad rap as, as being the hellfire and brimstone type, even though they speak tons about grace. But there was one prophet who really fits the bill of the hellfire and brimstone. I mean, we may think we know his story. If you grew up going to a church gathering, you maybe even heard about his story in Sunday school. If you have children, you've probably seen the VeggieTales version. Um, But what do we think about when we think of Jonah? We think of a big fish. Some of us even think, you know, that he's this great hero of Nineveh. But, but when we come to see him, we see that grace is offensive and Jonah is quite frankly offended at the whole scenario. What's even more daunting is that when we really get to know Jonah, he's a lot more like you and me than we're probably willing to admit. He carries within himself this judging eye, and you may not believe me, and as I was reading Jonah, I didn't want to believe me. But when we walk through the story, we're going to see a twin tale, a twin tale of grace displayed and grace despised. Grace displayed and grace despised. And if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. 
You see, the, the story of Jonah, it starts like so many of God's stories do, with God interrupting someone's life to display grace. Look at chapter 1, verse 2 with me. God speaks to Jonah saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, for their evil has come up before me. And Jonah does what we haven't seen any prophet do yet. He's one of the first prophets that actually does the complete opposite. He runs away. And he couldn't be more audaciously disobedient. Because right in verse 3 it says, But Jonah, what does he do? He rises and flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I mean, what's the deal, Jonah? Well, if we understand Nineveh, Nineveh was one of the main metros of the empire of Assyria. And just like the cities today, they were philosophically curious, they were technologically advanced, and they were culturally diverse. They were this major hub. But there was one thing that was the hallmark of the Assyrian empire, violence. I mean, they were masters in the art of cruelty and outlandishly brutal. I mean, here's just a snippet from an Assyrian war bulletin from 1000 BC. It says, I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes before their cities, flayed the nobles, as many as had rebelled, and spread their skins out on the piles of dead corpses. Many of the captives I burned in a fire, many I took alive. From some I cut off their hands to the right, from other I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. I mean, Jonah, he knows Assyria all too well. These are geopolitical neighbors, and so Israel has felt this cruelty by their sword one too many times. Assyria, it stands for everything that is wrong in the world, opposed to God's purposes and opposed to God's people. And yet, when God asked Jonah to go because of their evil that has come up before him, Jonah knows what God's up to. He knows that God is up to something good for someone who is anything but good, and he doesn't want anything to do with it. You can almost hear him say, Nineveh? Really, God? Really? Nineveh? Forget it. I quit. I'm not going to be a prophet anymore. I'm out of here. And and so Jonah, he makes his way down to the port city of Joppa. And and, and he finds a ship going as far away from Nineveh and as far away from God's presence as he possibly can. It just happens to be Tarshish in this this situation. We've all been in that place where we just want to run because we're either angry or we're scared and we begin to book it. And Jonah, it just happens to be Tarshish. But while Jonah, he's on his cruise to anywhere but Nineveh, God sends this storm that's so intense that the boat is about to break up and the sailors, they're freaking out and they're crying out to every god that they can recollect they've ever come across in any country. I mean, okay, uh, I think I met this one in Asia Minor. Yeah, maybe he's behind this. Yeah, start calling out to him. And they begin to call out to everyone. But where's Jonah? We know the story, right? He's down inside the boat asleep. (laughs) And one begins to think, is Jonah really that heavy of a sleeper? That the boat is about to be demolished and Jonah's really just able to sleep through it all? Did he take some NyQuil or something? What's the deal? Well, I think that Jonah knows exactly what's going on and that God's trying to get his attention. But he won't have any of it. In his stubbornness, he just blocks it out. And so the captain of the ship has to come down and get him up. Get him to actually deal with what's happening around him. And he says, what's wrong with you? 
stop sleeping. Come out and cry out to your God. Maybe it can do something. I mean, the sailors don't know anything about Jonah's God, but hey, we got to start crying out to everybody we can think of at this point. We gotta, this is a last-ditch effort. And then, and then in the middle of this squall, you have this strange scene of these sailors casting lots, which is a lot like rolling dice, which makes no sense to me with the ship going the way it is, how this even is intelligible. But in their effort to figure out whose fault it was, Jonah's number comes up. And you could imagine the look on all the sailors' faces as they all turn to Jonah. Jonah's maybe twiddling his thumbs, like, hey, guys, uh, you know. And, and, and they, so they begin to spew these questions at him in verse 8. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Who are your people? What's going on? And Jonah, you could almost imagine with this look of disgust, kind of rolling his eyes. He responds, all while the storm is still raging, mind you, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. But instantly the men's eyes get huge because they remember that Jonah had told them that he was running from this very God, this God of the sea and of the land, the God of heaven. And so they instantly knew what was going on. So they ask, well, now what do we do? You got us into this mess. How do we get out? And they're barely standing upright because the text keeps telling us over and over again, the storm somehow continues to get worse. I don't know how the ship is still upright at this point. But what Jonah won't do is he won't confess to God. He won't change his mind. But he chooses to end his life rather than save it, rather than change it. So Jonah, he's come this far from running from God. And he won't give in now. So what does he say? He doesn't say, let's cry out to Yahweh. Let's cry out to God. He just says, yeah, just throw me in the water and things will calm down. I mean, is that really your natural first response if you're in a healthy mind? <laughs> no. Well, after fumbling around, the crew didn't want to do it. And so they, 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 fight, they begin and they pray out to Yahweh. They're the only ones who actually talk to God in this scene. Jonah won't. And they say, God, forgive us for what we're about to do. We don't even know you, but we're going to throw this guy in the water. Don't hold this against us, okay? He told us to do it. And so they throw him in the water into the amazement of everyone. Instantly, the water becomes calm. But Jonah is swallowed up by more than just the waves, right? He's swallowed by the most famous belly in all of Scripture, you know? This belly of a huge fish. Well, ever since Jonah began running from God, he's been on a downward spiral. And, and our story makes this clear. It says he goes down to Joppa. Then he goes down into the ship. And now he's thrown down into the water and swallowed down by the belly of the well, going deeper and deeper into the sea. He's going and he's trying to run from God and he's sinking further and further into the depths. And what's something so amazing that I hadn't really thought about until I was rereading it this week, was that it took 72 hours before Jonah says a word. He's in there for three whole days before he confesses. It says it's been three days. I mean, can you imagine being cramped? I, I mean, you, we can't. Inside of the belly of, of a huge fish, not saying a word, tight-fisted, angry, unwilling to compromise at what God has called him to. And then finally he'd had enough gurgling enough stomach acid, I don't know what, he prays out this confession 
And in chapter 2, verse 10, as soon as he confesses, it says the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I think the real miracle here is how any fish stomach this much bitterness for three days. But although God had given Jonah a second chance, he's not going to budge on what he's called Jonah to do. His command isn't any different. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. All right, Jonah, listen up. Saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And this is where the change happens. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. But Jonah doesn't have to like it. We don't hear anything about his attitude throughout this process. He's going to do the bare minimum just to get God off his back. So how could he enjoy being with these people, the Ninevites? So he makes the journey across the desert to Nineveh, far from the sea, a city so big that it actually takes three days for any one person to make their way through the whole city. But he only walks around for a day, not for three days. So this tells you how far he's gone in. And he says eight words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. No more, no less. And you could almost picture Jonah, this emaciated fellow. He'd been, he spent three days being covered in stomach acid. And now he's got wind-worn skin from the desert, carrying around a sign that says God hates Nineveh. I mean, that's in essence what we have here with Jonah. He's not a very lovable character. And somehow, against all odds, the whole city of unlikely characters, they go into a revival. The markets, they stop to a halt. School is canceled and restaurants are empty. Everyone from the king all the way down to the cattle, are, they have burlap on and they enter a time of fasting and crying out in confession, hanging on to, it says, a slim hope that maybe this God that in 40 days is going to destroy Nineveh, might have mercy on them. Outlandish faith in some regards. Outlandish. Eight words, one day, city transformation. <laughs> that doesn't really fit our normal math and our normal ministry programs and projections. Well, then in chapter 3, verse 10, we read, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The same grace that Jonah had experienced in the belly of the well, the, the same grace that God is so eager to always extend, he extends to a whole city that represents everything that's wrong in the world. This is what God does. This is the grace of our God. And this is where most of our child's Bibles end, right here. It's as if God is gracious to all and to all a good night, you know. But that's not the whole story, is it? I mean, we have a whole other chapter, and this is more than just God's grace displayed. As we said at the beginning, it's also a story of God's grace despised. And in chapter 4, verse 1, this is where we see the twist in the story, because Jonah's heart is laid bare. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. 
He was angry that this city had turned, had confessed, had humbled itself, and is actually spared by God. And in his anger, he says to God, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. You know, to paraphrase, God, you're so predictable. I mean, I, and I hate it. You, you, you either kill them or you kill me. You can't have it both ways. There, what do you think of that? You're going to make a decision between your chosen prophet or a city of murderers. And God, in his compassion, he turns and he asks Jonah this question. Jonah, what do you have to be angry about? You, Jonah, really? You, Jonah, who ran away from my command, got on a boat, wouldn't say a word, chose to jump in the water, was doomed to death in the belly of a whale, but I rescued you and gave you mercy? You, Jonah, really? You want to receive grace and not extend it? Really, Jonah? But Jonah, he doesn't say a word in response to the question. His silence is really deafening in the story here. And he goes, out the, goes outside the city and he sets up a camp to the east and he pouts because God gave someone grace. We don't know how long Jonah's out there camping. He didn't have an RV. He didn't even really have a tent. He had this makeshift booth. We don't know if he's maybe waiting for the 40 days to pass. Ha ha, I said my message. There's still hope that they might destroy themselves. But what we do know is that at some point, God just has mercy again on Jonah and he sends this little shade tree as he's sitting out there in the Mediterranean sun, sweating it up. He sends this shade tree that comes over Jonah and he starts to get comfortable. And the very next day, God sends a worm and it kills this shade tree. And Jonah, you know, he probably thinks God's behind it, which he is. And so he gets even more angry. And then God sends this eastern wind, which is coming out of the desert and it's pelting him in the face. If you've ever been in the Middle East and you've felt the wind begin to blow in the desert, it carries sand with it and it pelts you. It doesn't feel great. So he's hot, he's sticky, you know, and he's getting pelted by sand and he's watching this hated city still stand before him. It's a pitiful picture for Jonah. And, and what does he do? He pulls out his signature move. For the third time, Jonah says, ah, oh, just kill me, God. Get it over with. I'd rather die than sit here. Well, thankfully, God doesn't always give us what we ask for. You know, in his grace, he denies some of the things that we request, which is a great blessing. But he does want to teach Jonah and all of us who are reading and listening on a lesson. So he asks again this question, but a little more nuanced. Jonah, what right do you have to be angry about this little shade tree? And Jonah replies, I have every right. I'm angry enough to die. There it is. I said it. Kill me. And in verse, verses 10 and 11, these last two verses of the book, God gives Jonah this final lesson. The book of Jonah in all of scripture is the only book that ends with an open-ended question. And it's in this open-ended question that we find the key to unlocking the message of Jonah. God says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor 
nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Jonah, your heart bleeds for a plant. And yet there are 120,000 people who are made in my image and cattle, which, you know, we're going to compare this to one shade tree. I mean, we, we are to be stewards of God's creation and to care for trees, right? You know, this is important. But when you do the, the comparison, it's outlandish. Jonah, I gave you grace while you were in the belly of the fish when there seemed to be no hope, no way of escape. And should I not now give grace to these Ninevites? Jonah, you received grace. Why won't you give it? And when we hear God's question to Jonah, it resonates in our hearts. And we find this inconvenient truth that's true of all of us, that we're more judgmental than God is. You see, God who knows all things, he knows the depths of our depravity even better than we know ourselves. He's eternally sovereign over the universe without a single ounce of imperfection. And he still finds joy in extending grace at the the drop of a hat. It's always God's first option and his second option and his third option to extend grace. Whereas you and me, uh, we struggle to know ourselves. We fumble through life at best. We carry twisted motives at our core. We choose more often than not to judge by appearances. We cut people's lives or cut people out, out of our lives when they've offended us. And we hold on to these deep grudges. I mean, why do we hate grace? Because grace is offensive. What we do when we fail to give grace to others is we essentially say they're not, they don't deserve our love anymore. I can't believe they would do that again. It hurts too much this time. They're not good enough for me anymore. But by its very definition, grace means that none of us are good enough before God. It uncomfortably levels the playing field in our relationships. Grace, it whispers to you and me that we have deeply offended God time and time again by ignoring him, disregarding his leadership in our lives, and cheating on him with the idols of our hearts. And yet, God is always willing to extend his grace towards us in Jesus. You know, the world hasn't always been this way. But ever since the world has been at war with God, we're born at war with one another. And there's been a recent episode on 60 Minutes. Um, I don't know if you've seen it or not. But this, this recent episode of 60 Minutes, they interviewed the Infant Cognition Center at Yale University. It's also known as the Yale Baby Lab. And they were interviewing them on whether babies show signs of morality or, or, or prejudice. And what was so astounding is that they found babies three to six months old were able to show preferences, a preferential treatment to those who are like them, and a dislike towards those who are not like them. Three to six, six months old. I mean, it was amazing. If you get a chance, I'd watch it. You know, it's, it's a really great episode. And we don't, we don't seem to have this natural receiving and giving of grace wired into us ever since the world broke at the fall. 
Rather, it was only older children who had learned to extend kindness and grace who could extend it to others. And it seems, though, that no matter how old we get, we still can act like big babies, right? Um, We tend to, to, to think, my world revolves around me. I like those who like me. I love those who love me. And, and quite frankly, I'm going to cry about it when I don't get what I deserve. And I'm going to cry about it when others don't get what they have coming to them. But it's hard to recognize this in ourselves. At least without a little prodding. And I think, to be honest, we need to do a little assessment of our heart. We'll find that we all wrestle to be grace haters in some shape or form. Um, just like Jonah. So I, I want to look at some symptoms of grace haters. Here are a few diagnostic questions to reflect on. First, do I take for credit? Do I take credit for the good things in my life? Do I take credit for the good things in my life? Is that because that was you? Secondly, do I resent God when bad things happen to my life? Thirdly, do I believe I've somehow earned God's love and kindness? You know, I do well at my job, I'm a good family person. You know, I've been chased in my single life. I mean, God, yeah, God loves me. If you answer yes to any of these questions, then quite frankly, you hate grace. I know that's bold. <laughs> Yikes. Um, but I know we have a hard time even answering these questions very honestly. We have our pat answers. We like ourselves a lot. Um, we think we're pretty good people nine times out of ten in comparison to others. So I want to ask a few more diagnostic questions. Um, that are harder to wiggle around. And we're going to even, I'm going to ask you to rank yourself one to 10, not just a yes or no, because we'll tend to say, ah, oh, nah, or ah, oh, yeah. And we just tend to, I mean, you know, we just tend to like ourselves. So a scale of one to 10, think about it, write it in your note sheet, however is going to help you. But the first question, am I growing with patience? Growing in patience with others on a scale of one to 10. You know, is there someone in your life that annoys you? Kids? When you're hanging out with your siblings, you know, is there someone, one of your siblings that's trying to take your toy and you're just annoyed and you're saying, give that back to me, you know, you don't want to share. Well, we all kind of have this natural inclination (laughs) that when we're running late or we're angry or we're short-tempered or we're disorganized, it's, it's because of our circumstances, right? Oh, it was traffic. It was the dog. My computer died. But what's so terrible is that when other people are late, disorganized, or short-tempered, what do we think? Ah, that's just the way they are. That's their character. They're lazy people. They're stupid people, you know. They've got issues with discipline. And yet, we're all in this boat together wrestling with our issues. So I ask you, are you growing in patience with others on a scale of 1 to 10? Secondly, do I have a preference for serving or being served? When you come home from work or you're at home, when you come to the downtown campus, when you're with your friends, is your natural modus operandi to be waiting, uh, to be be waiting to be waited on? Or are you reaching out, asking how you can help, how you can serve, how you can contribute? Do I have a preference for serving or being served? And then thirdly, This is a tough one. Do I have to get in the last word? This is a tough one for me. This is a challenging. When when you get in an argument, do you always have to to win? 
Or do you always have to be seen as the smarter person? Even though you may not win, you're obviously the smarter person in the situation. So getting in the last word. It's all about pride. It's about arrogance at that point. Fourthly, am I quick to think the best or the worst of someone? When you hear that someone is conservative, you hear that someone is liberal. When you hear that someone is gay or straight, they have a prison record or a divorce record, whether they're the only child or the oldest child or the youngest child, a painter or a plumber, we sometimes discount people right when we meet them. When you first meet someone, do you fill in those gaps with suspicion or with grace? Am I quick to think the best or the worst of someone on a scale of one to ten? Two more here. Do I believe there are some people beyond God's reach? Do I believe there are some people beyond God's reach? Who are the Ninevites in your life? I mean, who do you feel, who do you look at to feel better about yourself? We all have those people. Well, at least I'm not that guy, you know, or at least I'm not that girl. Well, I'm not doing it that bad. And we have these people that we compare that are almost out of God's reach. You tell yourself that you're at least, your sins aren't as bad as theirs. So I ask you, do you believe there are some people beyond God's reach? And then finally, do I desire God's best for my enemies? Who do you secretly wish bad things would happen? We have these people too, right? Um, we, feel, we feel that way. We just don't have theological terms for it. We would, we would say we're not as bad as Jonah. Like, I'm never going to tell someone you're going to hell. You know, like, you are theologically going that direction. I hope you spend eternity there. But we very, may, very well may hope that people go through hell at times. Uh, we, we, it's as subtle as seeing that person speeding by you on, on the highway, and you hope that just around the corner there's a cop that's going to give them a ticket that's going to rock their world. Or that overbearing boss just one too many times has been weighing down on you, and you finally see get him get chewed out by his boss. And you sit back and you go, yeah, he got what was coming to him, Right? We have this sense of, 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 of reparation or, or, or retributive justice that we want to see attached to people rather than having a gracious outlook. And why do we do these things? Because we hate grace. <laughs> and if you hate grace for others, it's a sign that you really wrestle with hating grace for yourself. If you refuse to forgive, if you're always waiting for the hammer to fall, if, if you're looking down your nose at others, you're just like Jonah, waiting for God to destroy Nineveh. I mean, who wants to be like that? I mean, Jonah, he makes me think of this bitter old man who ends up resenting everyone and thinking everyone owes him something while he sits there in misery looking through the paper the rest of his days. I mean, do you want to end up like that? I don't want to end up like that either. I know many of you don't. Some of us, we wrestle with whether we want to end up like that. So we ask the question, how do we change? How do we change? And I think there are three helpful points. They're quick. Um, but first, and this is pretty, I mean, this is pretty obvious, but first we have to embrace God's grace humbly ourselves. We have to embrace God's grace humbly for ourselves. I mean, we cannot give to others what we ourselves hate. And genuine grace, it flows from a heart that has received God's grace and humility. We've come to grips that we're flawed people, that we're broken people, that we need God's grace to come into our lives. 
Because only when we realize we need it, then we can finally receive it. You know, God, he's persistent with the Ninevites and with Jonah. That's what's so beautiful about this story. God is truly the hero here. He's persistent with the murderers and the arrogant. And quite frankly, the murderers are shown as the better in the two. So if we wrestle through pride, we can't say, well, at least I'm not a murderer. Because here they're held up as at least the better of the two. The ones who eventually receive grace where Jonah is left in oblivion as how he responds. He's still wanting death by the end of this picture. Everyone has issues, but God longs for each and every one of us to know him, to know his grace, and to embrace it with humility and lowliness of heart. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul is writing the church, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast, right? Well, not only are we to embrace God's grace humbly, this is the first step, but next we, we have to choose to give others grace liberally. I mean, you knew this one was coming. Because giving grace isn't about giving grace because someone deserves it. It isn't giving grace because you feel like it. It isn't giving grace so you can manipulate them and build up your community structures. It isn't about self-justification either. Well, I forgave them, so they'll forgive me, and everybody's kind of the same. But grace is actually the overflow of what God has done in your life because you don't deserve it and willing to give forgiveness and grace to others even if they don't deserve it in your eyes because you know you're no better. We choose to finally see others as we see ourselves, as broken and in need of grace and objects of grace that he's called us to. And this, this is where joy comes from. It's so heavy. We see Jonah. How does he respond? He's, he's bitter. He's angry. His life is, a, is ter- tumultuous here. It's just terrible. And yet, forgiveness frees us from this bondage and allows us finally to have joy once again. Giving grace allows us to have a community that's caring for one another and flourishing in the purposes of Jesus Christ. It's not always easy, and it's not as easy as just saying, I forgive you. Sometimes it takes years to grow this base of grace, ace of base, base of grace, you know. But, but, uh, but not only do we go from embracing God's grace humbly to giving others grace liberally, but we must, and we see this clear here, we must tell of God's grace faithfully. You know, one of the greatest acts of love that we can do to those that are around us is sharing the gospel. God's redemptive acts in history for broken and needy sinners. And at this side of the cross, we can easily say that it is Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his burial and resurrection for us that we might have life and experience the joy of life everlasting. You see, some have said, uh, preach the gospel and use words if necessary. But to preach the gospel, we must use words or it's unintelligible. It becomes good deeds inspired by an an ambivalence something, unless there's ever conversation, unless there are ever words that clarify the source of the work. You see, Jonah doesn't want to share this good news with Nineveh because he doesn't love Nineveh. But this is one of the greatest acts of love we can do. And even in Romans, Paul writes in chapter 10, verses 14 through 15, 
How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, right? And as we think about the gospel that we proclaim and all its beauty and all its grace, we see one who is way better than Jonah. He doesn't go down into the belly of the whale to avoid God's plan, but he goes down into the depths of the tomb because of God's plan. He doesn't do the, the, the minimum to get by, but gives out his maximum. He doesn't sit and wait for the city to be judged, but he weeps over the city to find grace, to find God. Jonah, he excludes God's grace, but Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, exudes God's grace. This is the gospel that we embrace. This is the grace that comes through Christ that we give. And this is the gospel that we proclaim. So will you embrace what God has done for you in Christ with humility? Will you give grace to others as God has given to you in Christ liberally? And will you? Will you tell of God's grace and what he's done in Christ faithfully? Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you this morning. We see ourselves in Jonah more often than we like to admit. We find that too many times in our life we hate grace when grace becomes inconvenient, when it calls us to silence our own vengeance when it calls us to be sacrificial in our love. By the power of your Holy Spirit, transform our lives to embrace the grace that you give us and to give liberally to others who are so desperately in need of it as well. May your church reflect the gospel. May we love one another and be a testament to the good things that you are doing in your world. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Oftentimes, before people, you know, eat at their meal, what do they normally say? Can someone please say grace, right? Well, there's one meal when the church gathers together, the Lord's Supper that screams grace all on its own. When we partake of the broken bread, we, we hear the words of grace proclaimed to us of the broken body of Jesus Christ on our behalf. When we dip it in the common juice, we hear the words of grace proclaimed to us that Jesus generously shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup in a similar way saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. For as often as you drink it, you drink in remembrance of me. Drinking the bread or drinking the cup and eating the bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This morning, the table is open to all who proclaim Christ as their king and have embraced God's grace humbly, following in Jesus' footsteps. But for those of you who do not know Christ, we ask that you would refrain from the meal. You don't have to be a member of Christ's community but just a member of Christ's body at large. Remember, too, that this is not an obligation. If you'd rather spend this time in prayer, reflection, 
please know you have the freedom to do that. And also, when you do come, come down the center aisle, loop around. We have two communion stations behind these two dividers. You'll partake, return to your seat, partaking in groups of four to six, taking the bread that is gluten-free and dipping it in the juice. Whenever you're ready, after a time of reflection, setting your heart right with God, please come to this grace-filled meal. Amen.